You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week is going to be a continuation of last week's topic on popular old wives' tales. So if you tuned in last week, um, and if you didn't, you should, we talked about (laughs) um, the old adage, feed a cold, starve a fever. We talked about whether you'll get sick from going out in cold weather with wet hair in the wintertime. We talked about whether you should drink cranberry juice to treat a urinary tract infection and whether raw cut onions in your socks will cure a cold. And spoiler alert, we were able to debunk a lot of these as myths. Um, So this week we're going to continue this. It's a really fun, lighthearted topic for us, to be perfectly honest. It's nice to take a little bit of a break from COVID, but don't worry. We will return in a couple of weeks. Um, And of course, we're still posting regularly about COVID to our social media channels. Um, Before we dive into today's podcast, Andrea, we have some exciting news to announce. We sure do. (laughs) Um, So we are finalists for the COVID Data Heroes Award. And so this is an award that is created by the Data Access, Transparency, and Advocacy Group. And it serves to reward those whose commitment to the core values of the group have improved the lives of those in their communities. And the aim of this project is to give recognition and, of course, ultimately small monetary awards to those who have made data a central element of their efforts and communications during COVID-19. So this award, actually, there are five different cohorts in this award um, entity, and we have been selected as a finalist, one of five finalists in the pro, (laughs) (laughs) and there was hundreds of nominations, I will say, Um, but we were selected as one of five finalists in the provocateurs cohort. And the Provocateurs cohort is nominees that serve the critical role of advocates for data access, transparency, and advocacy, even when it became difficult and even dangerous to do so. The five nominees in this cohort represent the best cross-section of every other group in the Data Heroes Award and who made advocacy and commitment to transparency and data access the primary focus of their efforts. So according so surreal, sorry, no, it really, (laughs) really is. Um, Who would have thought that a year into this pandemic, we would be where we are now. Rebecca Jones, who's one of the organizers of the data group that is creating this data heroes award has said uh, colloquially that the provocateurs cohort make good trouble where good trouble needs made. They're advocates, pioneers, no-nonsense data people who use their skills to advance our collective understanding of COVID-19. And she also says this is the highest honor of all of our awards. 
I I I don't even know what to say. This is such an honor. We are being first of all, so many people are doing such incredible work throughout yes. this pandemic. Um, some of the people who were nominated, I just I'm pinching myself. You know, I, I we've read about them. We know yep. they're doing such incredible work. All we can say is that this is such an honor for us. Um, we feel so passionately about this work, as you guys know. Um, we feel a sense of personal and professional responsibility. Um, you know, but we also really enjoy communicating science to you all. And you know, thank you all so much for tuning in and being a part of this with us. Yeah, absolutely. And I will, you know, I will say so. So Rebecca Jones, when she made the announcement, she said um, the Data Heroes Award finalists Jessica Steyer and Andrea Love both public health and data experts created the unbiased science podcast to share data and information as broadly as possible. There is a full blurb as well as some portraits and headshots on dataheroawards.org and um, shout out to Josh Pelta Heller, our personal professional photographer. Um, But please check out the website. We are going to share the link on our social media pages because spoiler, there is a public voting option. So in this last stage of the finalists, we really need your support um, if we're going to have a shot of winning this award. So check out our social media pages. As Andrea just said, you know, we'll have lots of information. We'll we'll be posting regularly just to remind you all how to vote um, if you yes. feel so inclined. We really do appreciate all of your support. All right. Should we do this? Yeah, let's jump in. <laughs> okay. So today we're going to kick some, uh, kick today's episode off. Wow. That made no sense. Today we're going to kick things off talking about the old wives tale that goes, if you pull out a gray hair, two will grow in its place. <laughs> I've heard this, uh, you know, in my, in my old age now, I'm noticing a lot more gray. So it's something that I've wondered about. So Andrea, can you tell us a little bit about the science? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, you know, um, many of us have gray hairs cropping up. Um, and ultimately what's happening is your hair follicles, you know, are growing hairs, right? And, and your hair follicles within them have pigment cells and these pigment cells make the chemical that gives your hair its color. And that's called melanin. And those specialized cells are called melanocytes. Now, as you age, those melanocytes actually start to die. So you're still producing hair because the follicle is still living and there's other cells in there that, that synthesize hair. Um, but as you, as you, as those melanocytes start to die, you start to grow hair that have no pigment. So the new hair that comes out of that follicle is now lighter and ultimately will take on shades of gray, silver, and white. Um, and this ultimately is genetically determined and, and typically inherited maternally. So if your mom, um, you know, went gray early, you know, at an earlier age or went gray at a later age, that will often be linked to the time period around when you will start to, um, you know, develop some gray hairs. I'm, I'm 33 right now. And I'm starting to see more and more of these on the crown of my head and they, I have very dark hair. So they become very, very obvious. Now there are some diseases that can also cause hair graying, um, like vitiligo, neurofibromatosis and alopecia. Um, but again, a lot of this is genetically determined. So 
as you age, your gray hair numbers are going to increase in time because each of these follicles, eventually the melanocytes are going to start to die. You're not going to make melanin and then more new hairs will grow in that are gray, silver, or white. Um, and so that myth is stemming from this kind of observation that as you get older, you know, you have a natural increase in gray hairs, but, but you only have, you know, one hair per follicle, basically. So if you pluck one hair, whether it's gray or not, a single hair is going to grow back in its place. Um, so, you know, you're not going to promote the expansion of gray hair simply by plucking those ones. Um, but something to keep in mind is when you pluck those hairs, you can potentially actually damage the follicle. So if you pluck them too often because you don't like the sight of the gray hairs or whatever the case happens to be, you may actually damage the follicle to the point where no hair grows back in its place. Um, and so that's something to keep in mind when we're talking about this little myth. Um, and then the very last part is, you know, even if you have a single gray hair, the surrounding hairs are not going to turn gray until their own follicle pigment cells end up dying. So that's pretty much that myth uh, debunked there. Okay. Well, that's, that's some good news for people, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So we could put that one to rest. Um, all right. So here's another one. And we put this out on social media. We asked for folks to submit topics, you know, that, that, that they would like to hear some answers to. And so we heard uh, a lot of great things from the herd. So we heard from the herd that you guys want to know, is it true that you shouldn't swim less than an hour after eating? So the concern is that because digestion diverts some of your blood flow from your muscles to your stomach, swimming might somehow inhibit that necessary blood flow to the stomach, causing cramps so severe that you could drown. Um, I did some digging. There is no scientific basis for this recommendation. So it's true that you may end up with some stomach cramping or a muscle cramp, um, you know, if you go swimming too quickly after eating, but this is not a dangerous activity. And just want to highlight here, and Andrea, you would probably know a lot more about this than I would, since I am the least athletic person to walk <laughs> the planet. Um, but even though this is a myth, the relationship between eating and exercise is important. Um, you know, knowing when and what to eat can make a difference in how many calories you burn and how effective your workout is. And I'm always, I always think about that office episode where they're right, they're running for rabies awareness <laughs> yes. and Michael Scott carbo loads by having <laughs> fettuccine Alfredo for like five minutes before the run. So probably not a great idea could lead to some discomfort, but not anything dangerous, right? Yeah. And you know, another, another fallacy that I've heard linked to the, the swimming too soon after eating. Um, so, so, you know, when you eat, of course you, you have to divert some of your bodily energy to digesting. And there's that we, you know, we colloquially call it rest and digest as opposed to the fight or flight where, you know, your parasympathetic nervous system is participating and you, and you do actually, you know, increase blood flow to the GI tract. And, and other people believe that, 
you know, diverting that for digestion reduces the amount of blood flow necessary to your appendages, meaning that you would not be able to swim effectively and could drown that way as well. So again, there's no science behind that either. Um, but of course, you know, if you were swimming long distance, you know, if you're doing an open water swim, if you're a triathlete, you know, fueling before you swim is actually very critical. Um, some of those swims can be miles long, which I'm, you know, the longest I've ever swam in one go is a mile. And that was plenty for me. Um, but yes, absolutely. Fueling is important. You don't want to eat too soon simply due to discomfort, but it's not going to be medically dangerous. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think we could put that one to rest yes. too. All right. Now this next one, Andrea, we get questions all the time. Mm -hmm. Does vitamin C cure colds? Now we talked about this in a past episode. Do you remember which episode it was? was yes, it? it was spilling the immunity on supplements. Yeah, so we we did a pretty deep dive on that. We talked about vitamin C. We also talked about talked about zinc and some other um, some other minerals and supplements. But Andrea, can you refresh us and summarize whether this is true? Yeah, sure. So you know, vitamin C is often touted as this magical cure all. Um, it was originally promoted by Linus Pauling in the 1970s, and you know, touted that there were claims it could prevent respiratory infections, including colds, as well as warding off cancer and heart disease. Now, in that immunity episode, we did talk about the essential micronutrients that are really important for proper immune function. Um, and vitamin C happens to be one of those. So, you know, baseline levels of vitamin C is essential for cellular processes, including in the immune system. Um, but the data did does not hold up to scrutiny when we're talking about preventing or curing disease. So there's a little bit of evidence that supplementing with vitamin C um, may reduce the duration of common colds. Um, it's a very, very moderate reduction, something around eight to 14% reduction in duration of symptoms. Um, but there's no evidence that actually prevents illness. And it's important to keep in mind that this is typically related to long-term regular usage of vitamin C um, or, you know, dietary ingestion of vitamin C, because that's really the best way to get your vitamins and minerals is through your diet and not through supplementation. But there's other things that that play a role in recovery, right? So when you get sick, you know, rest, hydration, proper nutrition, that is all very critical. Um, and most people can get sufficient levels of vitamin C from their diet. So there's been a variety of research that's been conducted over the years investigating whether or not vitamin C is effective into preventing illness, um, reducing the duration of illness, and also reducing the severity of illness. So uh, a recent review looked at several published studies uh, regarding supplementation with vitamin C. And so in this, um, the participants were taking at least 200 milligrams a day of vitamin C. And this was taken on a regular basis. And it was found that this was not effective in preventing the common colds. 
And if when this review restricted the analysis to clinical trials or randomized trials that used higher doses, so at least a thousand milligrams a day, so that's five times the 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 baseline dosage in the earlier review, um, there also was no benefit in preventing incidence of the common colds. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so sorry, I don't no, I don't want to go ahead. Off there, but <laughs> no. so so what I'm getting is that it's not going to um, it's not going to reduce the incidence of colds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it may, there's some evidence that it could reduce the duration of symptoms. But again, this is not something that we've seen replicated consistently with research. Right, and exactly. If, and if I think back um, correctly to our that episode, Spilling the Immunity, um, we were saying that, you know, this is really a bigger issue for people who are deficient Mm -hmm. in vitamin C, right? And so for most of us, uh, if you're, if you're eating a balanced diet, uh, you're not, you're likely not going to be deficient in vitamin C. So this is not going to be as big of an issue. Am I? Yeah, absolutely. Jess, you're spot on. And you know, when we're talking about the, the reducing the duration or the severity of a cold, this is amongst people that have been taking vitamin C or ensuring that they're consuming, you know, levels of vitamin C regularly. Um, And that was, you know, again, a single study. Um, When you looked at therapeutic use trials, so this is people that weren't taking vitamin C regularly, but once their cold symptoms started, they started to take vitamin C. Um, Vitamin C supplementation did not help benefit duration of illness or severity of illness. Um, so, and then again, there was another meta-analysis that looked at 29 different trials that included over 11,000 participants. And this meta-analysis, which is a, an, an, a statistical analysis that combines the results of multiple research studies, they found no consistent effect of vitamin C on the duration or severity of colds. And the majority of the ones included in those trials were in fact, randomized and double-blind trials. So, you know, in conclusion, generally speaking, vitamin C supplementation is not going to reduce the incidence or prevalence of the common cold. Um, It also typically is not going to reduce the severity or the duration of illness if you start once your symptoms have appeared. And, but there's a little bit of evidence that routine um, intake of vitamin C prior to illness may reduce duration, but, um, it's not replicated that consistently. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than, Hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. But I'm a little bit excited about this one. This wasn't a, you know, 100% debunk like some of the others. It seems like there's some some science to support it, but it's not one of those things where, you know, if if you're taking vitamin C, you're in the clear, right? Right. (laughs) Absolutely. We We know the best things for proper immune function is a healthy diet, which of course includes those vitamins and nutrients, you know, rest, hydration, that's all gonna ensure that you can stay as healthy as possible. But we do know that these are caused by viruses and there's, you know, there's no magic bullet to prevent us from getting infected from these things. 
Very beautifully said. Um, okay, this next one, we we got this. How many right? people? Like a dozen this? times at I least. I think this was maybe the one of certainly one of the more popular ones. So yes. does heartburn during pregnancy mean you'll have a hairy baby? And <laughs> I could tell you, you know, I, I had two beautiful babies. My son Dylan was first. He came out totally bald. He was <laughs> bald for a, at least a year. Totally bald, like a bowling ball. Oh my bald. gosh. And then Sophia came out with this thick head of black hair, which eventually fell out in patches. She was looking all wonky for a little <laughs> bit. And now of course she's beautiful. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She was can I, beautiful. Can I just yeah. say yeah. <laughs> when I first read the, the, the people chiming in saying heartburn and hairy baby, like I wasn't thinking about like hair on their head. I was thinking like little werewolf babies. And I <laughs> guess that has to do with the fact that I personally don't have a baby. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's what some people were referring to, but I think no, it's totally hair on the head. head. Um, So yeah, so there's this old adage that stuck around for ages that women who suffer heartburn during pregnancy will have babies with full heads of hair. Um, Just to kind of, uh, I don't know, jump the gun here, spoil the punchline. There's there's little evidence to support this aside from one single study, which Andrea, you're going to tell us about, which was conducted a decade and a half ago. So can you tell us about that? Originally, this study was actually conducted to try and, you know, debunk the, the adage, um, you know, so it was a, it was a group at Johns Hopkins. Um, I think it was a nurse midwife that was heading up the study. Um, and they followed 64 pregnant women throughout the duration of their pregnancies and of the court, you know, over the course of their pregnancy, 78% of the women reported heartburn. And that's very common, right. You know, from my understanding and, and, you know, other people that I know heartburn is very common during pregnancy. You have a lot of stuff going on in your abdomen. It's pushing up on, you know, acid in your esophagus. But what they found was the severity of the heartburn was unrelated to the fetal sex, and it was also unrelated to the age or um, weight of the mother. Um, When they kind of triaged heartburn severity and looked at moderate to severe heartburn, there was 28... 28 women that reported moderate to severe heartburn of these 64 and 23 of them had babies with average or above average amounts of hair. And on the opposite side, there was 12 women who reported no heartburn during their pregnancy. And 10 of those women had babies with little or no hair. So this, the, the researchers concluded that, okay, this is a correlation because we see that proportionally more women with severe heartburn had babies with lots of hair, mm-hmm. but, and I, oh, sorry, go on. I, I was just going to say, you know, this is a very small study, right? It was 64 women in total and they only investigated further, you know, 40 of those women for, you know, presence of moderate to severe heartburn or absence of heartburn at all. And there's really no additional data aside from this. I was just going to say, I realized I was just telling you that I had one bald baby and one baby full of full of thick black hair. I, I never really even commented on the heartburn. Granted, there was an N of two, right? So really, <laughs> right. not much to take away from this. 
but I had more heartburn with my son who came out bald. So do with that what you right, want. But, right, right. Um, so when I was reading up on this, and I know we chatted about this, Andrea, it, it's it's more likely, you know, it's not the hair itself that is causing the heartburn, but it's really the hormones that cause it to grow that do, right? Um, and there have been some studies that show that the hormones of pregnancy relax the, did you just say this? Sorry if I'm being super redundant. No, no, I, I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> Sorry, relax the esophageal uh, sphincter, which can also contribute to heartburn. So it could be these same hormones that also contribute to, to fetal hair growth. Sorry. Yeah, no, 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 that's fine. Um, so, so as I was saying, that study, you know, they were simply just looking at this observational piece, right? Did you have heartburn, self-reporting, and was your baby hairy? And, you know, so they didn't really provide, I'm still picturing little werewolf babies. I just <laughs> can't. Um and they're adorable in my head. So, um, but, but aside from that, there was no mechanistic data. There was no, um, investigational studies on potential causal relationships. Um, and there is a little bit of data and some theories as just mentioned that increased estrogen levels can promote heartburn by relaxing the esophageal sphincter. Um, and estrogen levels can also be linked to fetal hair growth. So like logically it might make sense, but this is still a very preliminary correlation does not equal causation situation. Um, so I would rank, I would rank this one as mixed. There might be a little bit of science to it. It's not an all or nothing phenomenon because many women that reported mild to moderate heartburn had babies with very little or normal amounts of hair. Um, and, and we can't conclude that this is a definitive linkage without more research. Mm-hmm. Beautifully, beautifully said. So let's move on to our next one. Well, we, we're covering a lot of ground today. We sure are. Um, okay. So does gargling salt water cure a, a sore throat? So gargling salt water may provide some symptomatic relief, right? But mm-hmm. that word cure is a sticking point because it's not going to cure you. It might provide some relief, but it's not going to cure you. Um, the moisture on the surface of the throat is going to act as a lubricant and help soothe irritation. So both the Institute for Clinical Systems Improvement and the American Cancer Society recommend gargling with salt water to soothe sore throats. And according to the ACS, regular use of saltwater gargles can keep keep the mouth clean and prevent infections, particularly for people um, who are undergoing chemotherapy or radiation therapy. Now, can I jump in there really quickly? So, yes, please. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, you make a couple of really good points. So, I think you know, first we want to outline the difference between symptom alleviation and actually eradicating an infection that's already taken root. And I think you made a really good point that, you know, the symptom alleviation for gargling salt water can be very, very, you know, substantial. It can feel very good and it can soothe sore throats. It's not going to eradicate the respiratory virus that is causing that sore throat, right? Um, But when you make the point for um, preventing infection, and this is, these are, these infections that that Jess is referring to, um, these are are like skin infections in the throat and mouth because people that are undergoing chemo or radiation therapy, you're basically wiping out their immune system. So they become susceptible to these bacterial infections in the mouth. 
and very salty solution um, because it's so salty, it actually inhibits the growth of bacteria. So that's a separate kind of benefit of that for a specific group of people. And it actually, it's not curing, but it's, it's preventative in that instance. So, uh, so I, I, I don't know, are we, I don't know that we're debunking this, but we're making a very clear distinction, right? Mm -hmm. Between Mm -hmm. symptom alleviation and cure. So do with that what you will. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the limitations here is of course, these salt solutions are not well studied and typically people are making these at home. So again, there's not a standard course of action with regard to how much salt versus how much water and things like that. So there was a a small study in 2010 that looked with at 45 children um, and they were investigating or comparing the effectiveness of salt water gargle versus a mouthwash containing alum. Um, and so they basically found that, um, when you're talking about mouth bacteria, so again, these are not things that are necessarily causing a sore throat, but in theory, they, they might, they could in the future. Um, the children that use the saltwater gargle for 21 days, twice daily had a reduced amount of mouth bacteria compared with children who use nothing or a placebo, but it was not as effective at reducing bacteria as the alum mouthwash, which is your prescription grade, you know, medical mouthwash. And alum is a potassium aluminum sulfate is that active ingredient in medicated mouthwashes, which is commonly used for people that have mouth surgery, or you have a broken jaw and have their jaw jaw wired shut and they can't brush their teeth. It kind of does the job at cleaning your mouth when you can't use mechanical brushing or things like that. Thank you. I, I cannot believe I almost just moved on to the next <laughs> it's all right. uh, <laughs> old wives tale without it's been a actually day. referencing this. It, it's been y'all, a day. Y'all, it has been a day. It just, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> it's yeah. been a day. All right. So, well, now can I move on to the next one? Just because mm-hmm. it's it's related kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So the next question was, should we take honey for cough? I don't know if this is an old wives tale or not. I'm not sure this quite qualifies, but it came up and it's sort of related to to what we were just talking about. And we have to kick things off just by um, giving the disclaimer that you absolutely should not be giving honey to infants uh, younger than the age of one, right? Because we're worried about the risk of infant botulism, which is rare, but extremely serious. So um, doctors, uh, medical providers always say that you should not give honey to children under the age of one. Um, Also worth noting that unless severe, right? Coughing isn't necessarily terrible because it helps to clear mucus away from your airway. And if you're otherwise healthy, there's no real clinical need to suppress a cough. It's just kind of annoying, right? Right. (laughs) Absolutely. Comfortable. So I think it's pretty straightforward. We all know that, you know, honey is viscous in nature. And so if we take it, it will help coat our throat and there's this soothing effect. But is there more to it? So there are a couple of studies uh, that I came across. One published in 2007 that evaluated buckwheat honey, 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 there you go, buckwheat honey, and found it to be superior to no treatment and equal to honey flavored dextromethamorphin. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Did I butcher that? Dextromethorphan. (laughs) That's fine. You chuckled that you like almost snorted. Thank you. That's the act ingredient in uh in your cough suppressant syrups okay there you go 
Jeez, you're tough right now. Okay, no. So it was round two. Uh, again, it was, so it was superior to no treatment and equal to honey flavored, what Andrea just said, <laughs> in reducing cough severity and improving sleep for children and their parents. Um, we know that honey has some antioxidant and antimicrobial properties, so that might be a possible scientific explanation. Um, there was another study done um, in 2013 that sought to determine whether honey administered before bedtime would decrease coughing in children between the ages of one and five uh, and improve sleep for both the children and their caregivers. As those of us with children know exactly what I'm talking about right now. So this particular study enrolled 300 children with a nocturnal cough um, and a diagnosis of URI. And it was a one night study. It was a double blind rent double-blind randomized design with four treatment arms. So three groups received 10 grams, about one and a half teaspoons of one of three types of honey. So eucalyptus, citrus, and then one that was derived from uh, sage, mint, and thyme, or excuse me, from the plants. Yeah, from plants, including Mm -hmm. sage, mint, and thyme. And then the fourth group received placebo. Um, But the placebo was similar to honey in color, texture, and taste. So of the 300 children who were initially enrolled, 90% completed the trial with an even distribution among the groups. And there were some improvements uh, across all outcomes for both the treatment and placebo groups, but the changes were statistically significant only in the treatment groups. Um, So that's promising. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So I guess I guess what this kind of suggests to me, because I think we need a little bit more data, is that possibly the viscosity yeah. of the honey might coat the throat and, you know, alleviate some of the symptoms, but we're not really sure if there's actual science behind it. Exactly. Exactly. So there's some science to support it. We don't exactly know the causal mechanism aside from, as you just said, you know, maybe it, it is still the, the viscosity of the honey coating the throat. So... Yes, some evidence to support this um, without really fully understanding the causal mechanism aside from the coating of the throat that we just mm. <laughs> described. Um, also wanted to mention we, you know, you have to remember that honey is high in sugar. So it's not like you want to give too much of it to your child or to yourself if, if you're coughing. So just keep that in mind. Yeah. And I think Jess, you made a really good point, you know, especially if you have a productive cough, a lot of times it actually is beneficial to cough up some of that mucus. So, you know, unless you really need to try and alleviate that, you know, 
if you, if you're try, actively trying to suppress a cough for a certain reason, um, you know, otherwise it's best to kind of let that, let that mucus out, let it out. Okay. Let's move on. We have two, two left. more, I think. Okay. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. So the next one is one I know we've all heard an mm-hmm. apple a day keeps the doctor away. So let's kick it off just by talking a little bit about apples. We know that they're rich in fiber, vitamins, and minerals, all of which of course are, are great for us. Um, they also provide an array of antioxidants. Um, and you know, Andrea, I don't know if you, you don't have to talk more about this right now, but they, um, antioxidants, are substances that help neutralize free radicals, which just very basically are reactive molecules that can build up as a result of natural processes and environmental pressures. Not a good thing. Um, Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a little bit of a, I get very wary when foods are, are advertised as that because everything that you eat and every metabolic process in your body generates free radicals. And so probably we should talk about that at a, at a later episode, but I figured but, I, but I they have some more to say. <laughs> they are, they're very healthy, you know, fruits ultimately in general. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're also about 85% water by weight. So they can help you fill up without a lot of calories. So definitely some nutritional value to apples right? Mm -hmm. So where did this saying come from? So was doing a little bit of sleuthing and it seems that it originated in Wales, uh, first appearing in a publication in 1866 in a different rhyming format, which was eat an apple on going to bed and you'll keep the doctor from earning his bread. (laughs) I like that one. I know. I like that one. I think I like that one more. Um, And then the saying reappeared in 1913 in its current form. So it was actually really funny. um, These researchers at the University of Michigan School of Nursing in Ann Arbor, they sought to empirically evaluate this medical proverb. And I think it was, it actually started as kind of an April Fool's type of a thing. Um, I, I don't know if anyhow. So, but they, they actually conducted a study that evaluated an outcome um, of no more than one visit a year to the doctor as a means of investigating uh, this proverb success in daily apple eaters compared with non-apple eaters. So unfortunately, the research uh, did not was not all that supportive uh, of apples, right? So there was no statistically meaningful difference in visits to the doctor for daily apple eaters in the analysis. Interestingly, though, the study did find that an apple a day kept the pharmacist away, and there was a significantly, uh, a statistically significant um, reduction in the amount of, I'm I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, um, oh, in the amount of prescription medication use among apple eaters daily apple eaters Mm -hmm. versus non-daily apple eaters. But I think you have some, uh, some thoughts about some confounding variables in there. Yes. So I have so much to say on confounders. (laughs) You know, I'm dying to do an episode that's really epidemiology focused, but basically a confounding variable is a variable that is related to our exposure of interest. So in this case, we're talking about daily apple eating and is also associated with our 
outcome of interest, which in this case is visits to the doctor. So if there are some other variables that might be related to daily apple eating, let's say educational attainment, race, ethnicity, smoking status, there are lots of different variables that might be confounding the relationship between daily apple eating and seeing the doctor. And that's exactly what happened here. So uh, the researchers used data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey um, and Haynes, and um, they initially actually did find a relationship between daily apple eating and a reduction in uh doctor's visits. But then once they controlled for these confounding factors, this uh, any sort of statistical significance disappeared. So yes, lots more to say about confounding, but once we properly, properly accounted for those variables, the relationship seemingly went away. So all this is to say that um, apples are healthy, right? We know that they, they have nutritional value, they have nutrients, so they're certainly healthy for you. Um, but it doesn't seem that daily apple eating is, is actually going to minimize your visits to the doctor. <laughs> at least, at least by itself, right? If, if, if it's exactly. coupled with generally healthy lifestyle and other sorts of healthy habits. But again, that's a correlation, not a causation. Oh, one of our very favorite phrases. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, okay, I'm going to dive into this last one just because I'm dying to share this anecdote. I think it's the <laughs> such a cool, um, I don't know, why can't I find my words? This, this next um, old wives tale has interesting roots. So this next one is, do eat, does eating carrots actually help your vision? So the source of this claim seems to stem from the British Royal Air Force of all places. So they claimed that eating carrots was the key to their success in gunning down German aircrafts during World War II. This is according to the UK Ministry of Food. The now defunct agency rolled out a propaganda cam campaign detailing the pilot's superb carrot enriched night vision and actually encouraged civilians to devour more of the locally grown vegetable to help them function during blackouts. Now, Decades later, rumors swirled that the British Royal Air Force pushed that message as a cover-up um, for their recently adopted radar technology that they were secretly relying on for their nighttime skirmishes. Um, I also read, so apparently there's an online World Carrot Museum. This, this is a real wow. thing. We will link to it. Um, so according to the World Carrot Museum, the British government touted carrots' health benefits during World War II to lure consumers away from rationed foods. So again, part of that campaign emphasized vitamin A's role in seeing in the dark. Um, and so from this campaign, this myth grew that carrots improved already healthy vision in the dark, for example, during blackouts. So we know that carrots are rich in beta carotene, right? So that's mm -hmm. a naturally occurring pigment that nourishes the eye. It's a, now I'm probably, now I'm, I'm really self-conscious about mispronouncing things, Andrea, but <laughs> no, a, no, I'm joking. A carotenoid, carotenoid, yes, carotenoid, you got carotenoid. it. Oh my God. Okay. You can you just go. make fun of my accent. It's totally fine. I, what was the no. word mutant that Ethan Mut said I said? Mutant. Yes. Mutant. mutant. Yes. And you also <laughs> 
roll your R's, which I actually think is very, very nice. Uh, mm. But we haven't talked about that. We'll talk about that in another episode. <laughs> but yeah, so a carrot's nutritional value comes from beta carotene. Um, and so the, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm reading that uh, uh, according to the chief of laboratory of retinal cell and molecular biology at the National Eye Institute, vitamin A enables opsin proteins mm, to form mm-hmm. in cone cells mm-hmm. and rhodopsin protein yes. i'm probably butchering this nope. to form in rod cells near the back of the eye you know about this yeah so absolutely okay. no so so um <laughs> so you've got different different types of cells in your eyes that help process um daytime light nighttime light low light situations color versus no color and and obviously they all work together and they all produce different proteins Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So my takeaway from everything that I read is that vitamin A will help keep your vision healthy, but it's not going to improve your vision. Yes. Right? Yes. And on top of that, you know, vitamin A deficiency, at least in developed nations is very rare. Um, you know, there's a lot of vitamin A in a lot of food sources that we're routinely consuming on top of carrots, you know, sweet potatoes, lots of leafy greens, spinach, kale, um, a lot Mm -hmm. of different fruits and vegetables have a lot of vitamin A. Right. And most eye problems stem from vision impairment caused by, you know, genetics, aging, Mm -hmm. or diabetes that cannot be aided with an infusion of beta carotene. Exactly. Exactly. It's good for keeping your eyes healthy along with other leafy greens, as you mentioned, sweet potatoes, right? Or even, I think they're even higher in vitamin A than carrots, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're not going, you know, eating carrots isn't going to improve your vision, which is really a bummer because I'm, I know I could use (laughs) that. So, so it's really funny because you can, um, you can develop like a carotenoid toxicity called carotinemia when you overdose on beta carotene. Um, it can actually turn your skin kind of orange, which a little bit looks like jaundice, except your eyes themselves don't turn orange. And this actually happened to me in college, I, my favorite snack when I was hopping on the bus to head to the lab over at HSC at Stony Brook, (laughs) I would bring a baby, like a one pound bag of baby carrots and a tub of hummus. And I would eat that on the bus or while walking or whatever. And I was eating like a pound of baby carrots a day. And our friend Justin actually pointed out to me that the palms of my hands were orange. And then I, yeah. And it's not like, it's not like acutely harmful, but like I had to dial back how many carrots I was eating. That is so funny. I I love me some carrots, but I've never eaten so many that I turn orange. That's interesting. Um, So let me just mention one study. uh, Well, actually, so there have been studies that that have looked at the benefits of beta carotene or vitamin A supplements, but but I couldn't actually find any that focused specifically on carrots as a source. Actually, no, that's not true. I found one, one randomized control study in 2005. It examined how consumption of roughly 4.5 ounces of cooked carrots six days a week stacked up against other vitamin A rich options, such as fortified rice. What is this? Amaranth leaf? Am I mispronouncing Mm -hmm. that? And goat liver (laughs) for helping address night blindness in pregnant women. And long story short, all the foods performed roughly the same, although it was actually the vitamin A supplement that did best of all. So 
the study found that a regular diet of cooked carrots for six weeks helped to bring women's response to darkness to normal levels, which was interesting. But as you said, Andrea, really in, in most developed nations, um, certainly here in the U.S., we you know, this is already part of our diet. Right. And right. So this really isn't such a problem. Right. And night, night blindness is, you know, not a routine occurrence here uh, in the U.S. in particular or elsewhere right. around, really elsewhere around the world. It's, it's relatively rare. Right. So not going to improve your vision, but could help to keep your, your eye health, um, your, your eyes in good health. I don't know if that's properly stated, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, okay. Wow. I am butchering stuff today, but I think we're getting the, the main takeaways here. This was fun. I liked these episodes. It was a lot of fun. Um, anything else to add or do you want to take us home? No, let's, let's wrap it up. Maybe we'll revisit some, uh, some, some other, you know, old wives tales or, or, um, semi-science truths in the future. But, um, but thanks for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two. Please be sure to head on over to data hero awards and vote. Voting has gone live as of Friday. It is at dataheroawards.org forward slash vote. We are in the provocateurs cohort, so be sure to vote. Voting ends on March 29th, so we'll be sure to remind you. And if you like our pod and you're finding it helpful to make your way through the pandemic and navigate other science topics, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about careers in STEM and public health and the paths that we took to get to where we are. This is a question that we get a lot in terms of career development, and so we finally decided to devote an episode to it. We will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID-19, the ongoing pandemic, and vaccine progress on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.